0: Just a week after the midterm elections that didn't turn out to be a great victory for Republicans, Mr. Trump, a former U.S. president, announced his candidacy to run for the White House in 2024.
1: I I think if there were any other lesson to be learned from Jackson, it's that Jackson had a constitutional vision, um, which I think also... um, Trump doesn't yet have. I I suppose one thing that uh, uh, Donald Trump could learn from Nixon is that Nixon at least was able to come back and not be tarnished by um, as a loser. He wasn't really... uh, How did he manage that? He lost twice (laughs) big time. Cleveland was running the next time. Uh, He was still running as a man who was the symbol of honesty in government. Um, and, And I don't think Donald Trump can do that.
0: Did you know that the 1888 presidential election was quite unusual, in that a former U.S. president, Grover Cleveland, was running against a sitting U.S. president, Benjamin Harrison, who had defeated Cleveland just four years prior. That would be like Mr. Trump running against President Biden in 2024. But here's where things get even more interesting. When Cleveland lost that first presidential contest against Harrison and had to vacate the White House, he not only attended Harrison's inauguration, but he also held up an umbrella as his triumphant opponent read his inauguration speech in the rain. We certainly do live in different times now, don't we? If Mr. Trump does ultimately run in 2024, and if Mr. Biden beats him in that contest, can you picture Mr. Trump holding an umbrella for President Biden? Hey there, newspeelers. Today is December 9, 2022. And this is Adele, the host of the History Behind News podcast. Once a week, I have the pleasure of speaking with distinguished professors and critically acclaimed authors from around the world, who help us better understand our news and current events by providing some perspective from our past. We call this Peeling the History Behind News, the histories of many countries we read, watch and hear about in our news media, for example, whole series on Ukraine's, Iran's, Russia's and China's histories and of course several series on the U.S. economy, culture, politics, environment, science, and much more. I'm committed to making in-depth history that are researched and written by scholars enjoyable and accessible to everyone. So grab a cup of coffee or your favorite drink and let's get into it. In the detailed caption of this episode, I've included a YouTube link to a speech by Vice President Richard Nixon, and I encourage you to click that link and listen to his speech. It's just two minutes. The setting is January 1961. Nixon is speaking before the joint session of Congress, in which he announces his own presidential election loss to Kennedy. His brief speech is a testament to the sanctity of the institutions of our government and the importance of the system, the system of our democracy. After his bruising loss to Kennedy, Nixon came back, and in 1968, he won the presidency. 76 years prior to Nixon's comeback, Grover Cleveland had his own comeback. He regained the White House from Benjamin Harrison. And 64 years prior to Cleveland's comeback, Andrew Jackson had his comeback. He beat President John Quincy Adams. In addition to initially losing but later winning the presidency, these three men have other things in common. First, all three had humble beginnings. Second, all three initially lost their bids for the presidency to adversaries who, by most standards, were American royalty, as far as politics go. Nixon lost to Kennedy, whose family was famous, wealthy, and well connected even before he was president. Cleveland lost to Harrison, whose father was a member of the U.S. House of Representatives. His grandfather was the ninth U.S. president, and his great-grandfather was one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence. And Jackson lost to John Quincy Adams, whose father was none other than John Adams, our second president and founding father. Third, Although we don't discuss it in detail in this episode, controversy swirled around all of their election losses. Yet, none of them contested the results of those elections. Instead, they sucked it up and planned their comebacks. And that's exactly what I want to explore in this episode, now that Mr. Trump is presumably planning his comeback. How does his potential comeback compare to Jackson's, Cleveland's, and Nixon's? And what can he learn from the conduct and activities of those former presidents in their interim years? By interim years, I mean the years between losing the presidential election and winning it later. To dig deep into this history, I spoke with Professor Michael Gerhardt of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, where he's a Burton Craig Distinguished Professor of Jurisprudence at the School of Law there. If Professor Gerhardt's voice sounds familiar to you, it's because you've seen him on TV probably many times. During the Clinton and first Trump impeachment proceedings, Professor Gerhardt served as an impeachment expert for CNN. In the second impeachment trial of President Trump, he was an expert commentator for CNN, Fox, and MSNBC. In addition to all of that, Professor Gerhardt has testified more than 20 times before Congress including as the only joint witness in the Clinton impeachment proceedings in the House, speaking behind closed doors to the entire House of Representatives about the history of impeachment in 1998. In addition, he testified as one of the four constitutional scholars called by the House Judiciary Committee during President Trump's impeachment proceedings. He's the author of seven books, including The Forgotten Presidents and also Lincoln's Mentors, and his forthcoming book is FDR's Mentors, which we can expect sometime in 2023. To learn more about Professor Gerhardt, you can visit his academic homepage, the link for which is provided in the detailed caption of this episode. So, stay with me as Professor Gerhardt and I peel the history behind this news. Professor Gerhardt, it is a pleasure to have you on our program. Thank you for taking the time for this conversation with me. Mr. Trump has formally declared his intention to run again in 2024. The only U.S. president who has succeeded in this endeavor, that is, serving two non-consecutive terms, is Grover Cleveland, who was our 22nd and then 24th president. So let's get into it. Um, tell us a bit about Cleveland's background. Who was he before his presidency?
1: Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Uh, in terms of uh, Grover Cleveland, he was a New Yorker, um, just like Mr. Trump and just like several other presidents uh, had come from New York. Um, but he had um, a different kind of background than and, uh, several other New Yorkers um, mm-hmm. that had become president. Uh, Cleveland had no sort of elitism as part of his background. He began his life as a sheriff, but uh, that, is, in a sense, kind of signaled some of the path he was going to follow because Cleveland uh, ended up uh, devoting his life to fighting corruption. Uh, and after being ah, his okay. a sheriff and then a mayor, he eventually became governor of New York All of these things, um, all positions in which which he sort of fought corruption, and it was from his his position as governor that he first ran for president, um, and he won a plurality of the vote. Uh, He actually won the plurality, at least the plurality of the vote each of the three times he ran, Um, and that was a focus of his presidency. Certainly in his first term, Uh, his second term, which came later, had a different uh, focus.
0: So his first term was fighting corruption and crime. That was like the big theme of his first term, right? Corruption
1: and government. um, And at the same time, trying to ensure that the government's uh, budget was balanced and that um, he um, he, he didn't try as much in his first term to keep Congress in line, but he did try to sort of, uh, I think, stand for the integrity of the office um there were issues that came up later and then i'm sure we'll talk about
0: so yeah let's let's talk about that um in 1888 uh grover cleveland the democrat is running for a second term against benjamin harrison the republican um what happens here
1: well it's an unusual race um
0: unusual okay
1: uh, unusual in the sense that um uh, you had really two presidents running against each other. You had a, uh, an incumbent president, Benjamin Harris, Harrison running against a former president. We've never really had that kind of circumstance um, before. Um, and at the same time, they had very sharp differences. But one of the things that really stands out for me in the election, besides the fact that the country was entering into, into a depression, was how the two candidates treated each other. Uh, Cle- Harrison had defeated Cleveland um, at the inauguration. For Harrison, uh, Cleveland holds up an umbrella over his head.
0: Wait, he um, holds an umbrella over the person the head-, head who has who had defeated him.
1: Yes, uh, <laughs> it was raining, but it was a, it was a a gesture. So unique to the times and perhaps to those personalities, it's hard to imagine today um, a defeated uh, incumbent doing that. But Cleveland <laughs> did. And then that's an you know, understatement,
0: also, Professor Gerhardt. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. And then when they ran against each other the second time, unfortunately, Harrison's wife died during the campaign. And Cleveland stopped campaigning out of respect wow. for Harrison. Wow. And again, that's hard for us to imagine. Um, and he didn't really sort of come back without at least getting a signal from Harrison that the campaign should continue. Um, and so those moments for me um, are, are real rarities, especially in contrast to the kind of animosity and uh, that we see these days and the lack of sort of empathy and, and sort, yeah. of the sort of class we see in people running for the presidency.
0: That's for sure. Um, You said unique to the times. Were the 1880s not as polarized as our time now, especially 1880s was less than 20 years after the Civil War, right?
1: Well, I think the times were were polarized. You'd have to search pretty hard to find times in America when things were not polarized. Yeah, Um, But I, I think they didn't necessarily transmit into the candidate's being nasty uh, or the candidates sort of not uh, respecting the office that they were running for.
0: That's huge. Um, what was the 1888 election like? W- were there any sort of uh, rumors of, of um, fraud or anything like that?
1: Well, there was either, there were some rumors of fraud, but they didn't really relate to the election itself. So I, I think one of the big issues that re, came up in um, eighteen eighty eight was the fact the economy was was uh, really tanking, and the country was about to, in fact, enter into um, a, a, a depression, uh, and so much of the the um, the campaign was focused on the economy and less so on um, the the integrity of either of the candidates. Personality-wise, they were quite different. Uh, Harrison was extremely reserved. Cleveland was not necessarily gregarious, but he was certainly more gregarious than Harrison. And uh, they differed personality-wise, but they, they really differed in the extent to which they thought the government had a role in trying to deal with. Uh, economic trouble
0: i see how did cleveland orchestrate his comeback after four years now he's running against an incumbent you know That's someone in the white house question. so yeah
1: cleveland did not go away after his defeat um, he did not sort of um in a sense sort of uh after his defeat go off and become something else um uh, in, in other words an ex-president He remained central to the Democratic Party, tried to maintain leadership within the party. And I think he had every intention uh, of returning uh, or at least fighting to return. In fact, um, uh, one of the things his wife had said at uh, leaving, I'm just paraphrasing, was something like, you know, so uh, don't get rid of the furniture. We're going to be back. You know, that's kind of. (laughs) Um, That's great. um, Uh, but that gives you an idea of his mindset that he was not going to give up on politics or necessarily, or, or, or or choose not to run again. So he was always positioning himself from the moment he lost to becoming the democratic candidate again and front running as Harrison. And so that was his posture throughout those four years.
0: Was the, was, was the democratic party behind him or did he have to jockey uh, he, to get into it that was front largely position
1: behind him, it was it was not necessarily unified completely. but as a uh, former president who had actually won the nomination the first time and actually won the presidency the first time, Cleveland was a formidable figure within the party, and nobody was going to beat him, and nobody did
0: contest that now, we already, established that he handled his loss with dignity, the incident of the umbrella. First, he went to the inauguration. Let's start yes. with that. Then he holds the umbrella while it's, uh, I think it's while uh, Harrison was reading uh, his uh, inaugural speech. He holds the umbrella over him in the rain. Um, how did he remain relevant? You said, you know, from the outset, he was positioning himself to run again and be the nominee. When
1: he stayed at the head of the party. That was one of the critical things. I mean, Cleveland appreciated that the president was also really the leader of the of the party or the opposition party, um, and so Cleveland made sure that he kept that position, and that almost guaranteed he'd be the candidate next time around. Uh, so controlling the party, um, making sure that uh, the other leaders in the party were going to support him and he was going to support them, was was crucial for his. Um, Remaining a viable candidate for the presidency,
0: and I suppose that 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 includes uh, appearances, giving speeches, and all,
1: and and being involved in other elections. Yeah,
0: yeah. Um, now back to obviously we didn't have social media, maybe thank God, but um, were there newspapers that were uh, you know partisan that
1: were largely sort of attached to one party or the other? And- yeah. Um, And of course, uh, Cleveland kept his hand there. He sort of made sure that the Democratic papers were sort of going to be supportive, or at least not critical. Um, And so a lot of his activity uh, during the the four years when he wasn't president was spent on making sure that all those sort of Democratic apparatus, all that Democratic machinery was something he could control and was going to be helpful to him in regaining office. Did he also successful?
0: Yeah. Did he also submit op eds, write articles, all, all that. I'm trying to figure out how did he reach to the population in there general?
1: Worse in terms of speeches, um, mm-hmm. and even appearances. It's sort of keeping himself and, and and really emerging as a critic mm-hmm. of the the incumbent president Harrison. Those things kept. Cleveland in the news. and for some former presidents, certainly in the 19th century, um, did not just did not go away. even when they weren't running again, they remain um, sort of as critics of the people that defeated them. Um, and Cleveland, therefore was very prominent as a critic of the policies of the Harrison administration. and that also positioned him, as the primary opponent for Harrison.
0: I see. Are there any lessons from Cleveland's comeback for a potential uh, Mr. Trump comeback in 2024?
1: Well, there probably are. I, I'm not sure I know all the lessons. But I, <laughs> I think that, um, uh, I mean, they were very different people to be uh, candid about it. Um, Grover Cleveland uh, had not necessarily led a... a uh, a scandal-free life before becoming president, but he was op- he, but he acknowledged um, his, the so-called errors of his way. He actually had a child out of wedlock. Um, but he acknowledged that. And one reason why he ba- beat James Blaine in, his, in Cleveland's first run for the presidency is because Blaine, although he'd been in power for a long time, was subject to a lot of criticism for um, his handling of finances and his ethics, while he was in office. So Cleveland in running the first time really was running on the ground that look, I'm gonna be honest with you about myself and I will be honest in, in my in the office. Blaine lost in part because, um, because of the corruption I think that he had benefited from when he was a candidate. So when Cleveland was running the next time, uh, he was still running as a man who was the symbol of honesty in government. Um, and, and I don't think Donald Trump can do that. Um, so that's not going to be at all analogous. The, in, in that sense, they were quite opposite. Um, I think if there's, a, if there's another lesson to be learned, it's that Cleveland adapted the presidency. He wasn't the same person the second time around. Um, so he wasn't going to be the same president the second time around. I think Donald Trump is promising to be the same type of president the next time around, but maybe just more punitive of the people he doesn't like.
0: Um, Cleveland adapted positively.
1: Well, he, yeah, he adapted in the use of power. Uh, so he wasn't campaigning the second time to get even with the people that defeated him the first time. He wasn't campaigning the second time, sort of, to punish people. What he did promise and what he actually did in his second term was governed differently, and that was itself significant. So in, in his first term, Cleveland was a very passive figure in the sense that he let Congress do whatever it was gonna do, and then he would veto things if he felt they were um, uh, unconstitutional or uh, for, uh, against sort of, uh, uh, or just really done uh, passed for bad reasons. Uh, however, in the second term, Cleveland got involved in the legislative process, tried to push legislation through, became much more sort of combative and much more assertive in trying to steer the legislative process, something he hadn't done in his first term. Yeah. So he was a very different kind of president in that second term. In fact, so different that Woodrow Wilson at the time of political scientist, said that Cleveland really was creating what we think of as the modern presidency.
0: Interesting. Uh, We'll be back after a short break to talk about another U.S. president who had a major comeback, Andrew Jackson. We'll be back. After the midterm elections, I spoke with Dr. David Schultz about the polarization of America's politics. He wasn't shy about making a bold prediction that in about five to ten years, polarization will begin to end. He also talked about the power of super PACs, and how there are only about 35 individual megadonors in the U.S. who really matter when it comes to funding our elections. Kind of scary, isn't it? Also, recently I spoke with Professor Edward Foley, who told me the history of America's election disputes, including the election of 1876, after which we didn't know who our president is until just two days before Inauguration Day. He also explained how it is that our presidential elections are producing minority winners, not just at the national level, but also at the state level, including states that are highly contested. But this is certainly not what our founders had in mind. They wanted majority winners, not minority winners. By the way, both of these scholars believe that the presidential election of 1800 was the most important one in our history for the foundation of our democracy. The links to my conversations with Dr. Schultz and Professor Foley are provided in the detailed caption of this episode. Now, let's get back to our conversation with Professor Gerhardt. Professor Gerhardt, I want to speak with you about how Andrew Jackson won the White House. But before we do that. Let's talk a bit about Jackson's bigger than life, kind of like a colossal figure in our country, even Uh, before his presidency, right?
1: Oh, he was a very colorful figure. um, (laughs) And I think he took great pride in that. He was a very colorful, combative, um, and and strong personality. Uh, And as a general, he uh, had been largely successful, but also very controversial. but all, but all of that sort of success and controversy propelled him forward as a public figure. And so he, when he ran for the presidency uh, the first time, uh, he ended up running three times. Um, he ran largely as a political outsider and he lost that first time to John Quincy Adams. Um, and, and it was a very controversial election um, because Adams did not win the, the, the plurality or popular vote, Jackson did. But Jackson didn't have the uh, the numbers in the Electoral College to secure a victory. And ultimately, the election went into the House, and um, the House chose Adams, not Jackson. Uh, Jackson was convinced there was corruption. Huh. Uh, and he... he Proclaimed that there had been a corrupt bargain reached between Adams, who was the successful candidate, and Henry Clay. Clay didn't make the runoff; um, he finished fourth in the in the general election. Uh, but Clay, because he backed Adams in the House, therefore ended up um, really being owed a favor by Adams, and Adams named him Secretary of State in his administration. Jackson declared that was the corrupt bargain, in other words mm-hmm. that. Uh, Clay had sort of exchanged his votes for office. And that's, uh, and and for the next four years, Jackson ran against that corrupt bargain. Um, Uh, 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 Defeating Adams uh, in his, in his, Jackson's first victory as president.
0: It does smell a little uh, corrupt, doesn't it? I mean, one can use that to, to sort of for propaganda, right?
1: It was used as propaganda. I, I'm not entirely sure there was anything uh, that unusual uh, about the circumstance in, in, in that Clay wasn't running um, in the house. His supporters had to go somewhere. Yeah, um, and uh, I, I think for Clay's purposes, you know, Adams was a better, it fi- was a more appealing figure than Jackson. Clay believed in a strong federal government. Jackson did not. Yeah, um, Adams certainly agreed with that. So the alignment between Clay and Adams was was rather natural, so to speak, um, and that, of course, didn't prevent Jackson from reaping the benefit from um, waging a very strong campaign against the two of them, really, um, when Jackson ran the second time.
0: So um, I think uh, you implicitly may have answered my question. How did Jackson handle this loss in 1824?
1: Well, he was angry, um, and you know, this is where that combative uh, personality comes in, and Jackson was not somebody who took losing um, gracefully. Um, and so he, he did everything he could, sort of put together uh, a campaign, and eventually uh, there was another political party put together, the Democratic Party, and, and this is, became the launching pad for Jackson. Um, and launching himself in a sense against Adams, and he really sort of defeated him rather handily. And then four years later, he defeated Clay quite handily.
0: So Jackson was able to put a whole new um, political party together. Was
1: is- it was it was ultimately called the Democratic Party? And he certainly was not alone. He was not. There were a lot of people sort of putting that other party together. Martin Van Buren, for example, there were other sort of figures at the time. Uh, helping to put together what became the Democratic Party, but Jackson was the first beneficiary of it.
0: How did he stay uh, relevant in politics? Now this is this is some, um, gosh, uh, sixty years before Cleveland, you know, we talked about Cleveland. so in that time, how does one stay in politics? Jackson. Especially he, yeah. by the way, if I may add, please, he was not in the East Coast. He was out in Tennessee sort of away from everything that was happening, right?
1: But that allowed him to be an effective outsider. Uh, But Jackson also, I think, understood, perhaps much better than Adams, um, the importance of image. And he certainly kept his image up. And he uh, arranged for the first sort of campaign biography to be published. And he made sure that biography sort of got spread around.
0: Campaign biography. Wow. Good PR. All right.
1: so, so adam, and so Adams was an awful politician. I mean he <laughs> was um, he and his father shared that uh, unfortunate trait. yeah, um, and 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 so while adam Adams was sort of bungling around as as a candidate, Jackson was becoming quite effective in harnessing all the things he needed to be a successful candidate, the support of his party, the image that he needed. Um, the message that he wanted to spread, all that was sort of done through newspapers and spreading out that campaign biography and and uh, and putting for, and Jackson's putting forward the image that he wanted, which is a strong sort of general, uh, a guy who was not going to back down. Um,
0: in the eighteen twenties, did candidates such as uh, Jackson did they personally campaign and go out and give speeches, or does that come later in our in our in our history? They.
1: they um, They did and they didn't. Um, Mm -hmm. They gave uh, speeches when they could. Um, There there was less at that time of what we might describe as sort of um, uh, personal campaigning, but it turned out that that so-called tradition was changing, and Jackson sort of was one of the people that helped change it. I Uh, see. It wasn't ultimately sort of uh, changed for good until later. But Jackson sort of made it, made it clear that he was very much alive as a candidate. Um, and so he, he sort of emerged as sort of the voice of the opposition. Adams um, also turned out to be a terrible president um, in uh-huh. that he, he didn't make many friends. Um, he didn't have any legislation enacted. Uh, over the course of his four years. So it was not a great record that Adams managed to run on. Plus, Adams made the mistake of not supporting the uh, the power of the president to remove people. And therefore, his administration was staffed with all sorts of people that didn't like Adams. No, oh,
0: um, that's terrible.
1: They weren't particularly committed to Adams' success. Well, Jackson, when he came in, fired a lot of people, put his loyalists in, yeah. he helped unify the government uh, in his favor. And all these things that Jackson did were helping himself politically, but also helped transform the presidency. Um, I see. And later presidents would all take advantage of it.
0: You know, uh, Jackson comes from humble beginnings. He's a self-made man. Um yes. he, he, he was a effective lawyer. And then later he becomes uh, sort of a celebrity as far as his uh, defense and offense for the united states he took florida then he defended new orleans i mean jackson square in new orleans we we all know that so many historians in 2016 compared jackson to trump yet their sort of backgrounds are so different what's the comparison point here
1: well there, there are a couple of things going on um so first jackson was um Successful, I think, in building an image. Um, it, it's true he, he was a successful general, was put in charge of Florida, but his but his time there was very controversial, mm-hmm. uh, as was the time when he sort of uh, was in charge in, in New Orleans and, and, in fact, was uh, charged with various sort of abuses of power when he oh, was wow. in, in charge in New Orleans and, for that matter, in Florida. Um so it wasn't a, a rosy picture one got of, of, of Jackson. Um, it, it, colorful, yes, but not uh, always a nice guy and not yeah. always to play by the rules. Um, I'm sure a lot of that may have appealed to Donald Trump. Um, but Jackson um, was very deft at creating the image of toughness. And I think that was the part that most appealed to Trump. Trump wanted to sort of appeal and appear to be a very tough figure. So he even put the portrait of Jackson in the Oval Office when, uh, when Trump Interesting. was. Interesting.
0: Interesting. What um, did, po- did populism have anything to do with it that he sort of fancied himself as a populist? Yes, I,
1: it's a very good point. Yes. Populism was really created by and, and nurtured by Jackson it really had not been a populist president until Jackson and, and Jackson therefore, by becoming the first big D Democratic president, was the first president really who could claim and really did claim, look, I'm the president of the people, uh, of all the people. His critics called it mobocracy, uh, <laughs> really sort of almost afraid of turning over that much power to populism, which could, could go out of control, get out of control sometimes. Yeah. But but Jackson rode that way uh, and Jackson benefited from the populist movement. Um, I think Trump um, sort of positioned himself in a similar way, although I don't think um, he, he was ever as successful as Jackson. He, he didn't win the the popular vote was won by Hillary Clinton the first time, and was won by Joe Biden the second. So, yeah, there was no correl- It wasn't there was nothing analogous there. Jackson actually got the most votes each time he ran.
0: Exactly, yeah.
1: So they were, they were quite different in that regard.
0: In a few seconds left we have of this segment. Any lessons uh, uh, from uh, Jackson's comeback for a potential Mr. Trump comeback?
1: Well, Jackson really was not coming back as a president. He was coming back as a candidate. Um, I, I think if there were any other lesson to be learned from Jackson, it's that Jackson had a constitutional vision, um, which I think also um, Trump doesn't yet have. Um, and, and that vision that Jackson had was we were going uh, to sort of almost turn the government over to the people. yeah He, he Jackson represented the will of the people, the will of the, the will of the majority. Um, and uh, I, I don't know that Donald Trump has done that or, or could do that. But if you were to learn a lesson there, it would be perhaps not to put himself first, but to put the people first. That Jackson understood that much. Jackson was their champion, and Jackson got rewarded as their champion.
0: That's a great point. We'll be back after a short break to talk about Richard Nixon's comeback as a candidate.
2: We hope you are enjoying this podcast, and if you are, then why not treat us to a cup of coffee? That's right! For the price of a cup of coffee, you too can become a monthly supporter of the History Behind News podcast. We rely on your support to continue this program, to continue peeling the history behind our news. Supporting us is easy just click the support link in the detailed caption of this episode. And while you're there, check out the information about our guests and other attributions and links. And thank you.
0: Mr. Gerhardt. who was Richard Nixon before his presidency?
1: Well, Richard Nixon was a politician, of course. Um, He had been a lawyer even before that. But but he had entered politics um, and was a Republican. Um, He ran for Congress, he ran for Senator. Um, He had mixed success as a a politician. Uh, His greatest success came about when Dwight Eisenhower picked Nixon as a running mate, and therefore Nixon was Dwight Eisenhower's vice president. Eisenhower was enormously popular Of course, yeah. Successful. Uh, But Nixon was not really able to capitalize on on all of that popularity. Um, It's not even clear that Eisenhower was going to support Nixon later uh, when Nixon wanted to run and did run for president. But Nixon was um, was someone who who really was ambitious, but he didn't have a lot of charisma um, and. I mean, Eisenhower Eisenhower didn't necessarily have a lot of charisma either, but Eisenhower had something Nixon couldn't have. And that was Eisenhower was an incredibly successful general. Yeah, Uh, You know, the the, the extraordinary general that helped lead the forces when they, you know, during the Normandy invasion and ultimately, you know, uh, successfully in defeating the the Nazis in in Europe. Uh, That's, that's... uh, That's a great thing to have on your resume. Um, (laughs) to say the least. Yeah. There's only one person who really had it. Yeah. Eisenhower. I mean, George Marshall was also, of course, he was the supreme commander, ultimately. Marshall became secretary of state under um, Truman. And therefore, Marshall wasn't really in the position of remaining in government after Truman sort of exited. But Eisenhower was there to sort of capitalize. And so Eisenhower had this extraordinary history as a general even more extraordinary than Jackson's success, perhaps the only general ever in any way analogous would have been Uly- Ulysses Grant. Um, but um, And all that helped Eisenhower, but it didn't help Nixon. And so Nixon ended up sort of losing, of course, the presidential race against John F. Kennedy, um, almost left politics, but he did come back and he came back as a sort of law and order candidate later. And it was that sort of Platform that allowed him to uh, return and ultimately ultimately be successful as the Republican nominee in 1968.
0: Let's talk about his loss in 1960. I think every American high school student has seen the video clips of of that first televised debate between JFK uh, and 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 uh, Nixon. Um, Was there any controversy in that um, in that election?
1: Well, there were there were different kinds of controversy, um, but one of the things that, that happened just to sort of go back to the to the debate itself um, is that Nixon was not good on television.
0: <laughs>
1: uh, Kennedy yeah. was, yeah, uh, and 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 the fact that Nixon wasn't hurt him politically, um, and people who watched the debate thought Kennedy won because Kennedy gave this appearance and image of being kind of cool and 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 sometimes eloquent but people who listened to the debate thought perhaps Nixon did better than he did. That's
0: fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Um,
1: and but Kennedy understood something Nixon didn't quite yet understand that was the importance of image. And image was something that Kennedy developed and he benefited from that and it helped him later as president.
0: So Nixon loses in 1960. And again, I forget the year. I think it was either 62 or 64. He loses the California governorship race. Am I correct on that? Yeah. Yes. Um, So two losses. How does he handle all of this?
1: Well, not particularly well. He he was not (laughs) a a gracious loser himself. But Nixon did have a quality, I think, which was going to end up serving him well. That was he was dogged. He was—he was somebody who was not going to quit, um, and so he kept coming back. I mean, he—he he, he even said he was going to leave politics, but of course, didn't. Um, and he, but he came back, and it turned out that the timing was good. Um, Nineteen sixty-eight was not a good time for Democrats. Um, the Vietnam War was was immensely unpopular. Yeah, it was associated with the Democratic Party, particularly with Lyndon Johnson. Kennedy, of course, was no longer with us, and Johnson lacked Kennedy's appeal. He wasn't the speaker that Kennedy was. He um, didn't have that image that Kennedy had. The other thing that Johnson did have besides the war was he had become a great sort of proponent of the great society. Um, He had signed civil rights legislation, he had signed voting rights legislation, all of which might have made him popular in the East, but made him immensely unpopular in the South. And so Nixon took advantage of the protests against the war, um, which sometimes were lawless. So he became the law and order candidate. Nixon also was sort of not the, sort of the civil rights person that Johnson was. Therefore, Nixon could capitalize that on that in the South. Um, all these things came together and. Nixon, therefore, was able to win in in 1968 um, and ultimately became president.
0: You know, it's a curious thing. He loses in 1960. Then again, he loses, you know, a couple of years after that or so, uh, the governorship, uh, gubernatorial race in California. How did he convince the Republican Party to back him again in 1968? That's remarkable, isn't it?
1: And it was remarkable. It's it's partly because there just wasn't an obvious candidate. Uh, um, There wasn't sort of a a, a clear sort of person for the Republican Party to coalesce around. Um, And Nixon was able to take some advantage of that. He wasn't necessarily everybody's first choice, but having been vice president, having been around for a while, people knew Nixon, and that didn't necessarily hurt him as much. I mean, not everybody who knew Nixon thought he was a wonderful and charismatic guy. Um, perhaps not many people thought that, but having been around a, a lot, he was at least a known quantity. Um, and in a fractured party, Nixon was able to do something other candidates were unable to do, and that was he was able to sort of be sort of the candidate of the establishment. He was able to sort of be, the, in a sense, the, the more of the adult in the room and the non-quantity. And when he campaigned as sort of law and order guy, that fit, he did have an image that could fit that. Um, and he was able to take advantage of that. And of course, he wasn't the sort of raving liberal that um, Hubert Humphrey uh, yeah. <laughs> was. Um, and so Nixon was an antidote in a sense to that as well. And all these things sort of helped him in the general election. And, and as we all know, he, he became president.
0: When you say uh, represent establishment within the party, Republican Party, um, does that also uh, overlap with being sort of a centrist?
1: Yes. Yeah. Law and order, sort of centrist, um, but but the center of the Republican Party even then was um, was more conservative, obviously, um, but there was there was a um, response to sort of the civil rights movement, uh, and that response was largely um, good for the Republicans and bad for the Democrats. Um, as, as Johnson said, when he signed the civil rights legislation, we're going to lose the South for a generation. I think he underestimated the extent to which the, <laughs> the Democratic Party really was going to lose the South. Yeah, um, It's been a long time since any sort of Democratic candidate with the possible accession of Jim, Jimmy Carter... Um, really could sort of capitalize in the South. There have been other Democrats, obviously Barack Obama made some inroads in the South. Um, Joe Biden even had some success, but those seem to be almost more the exception than the rule. Um, Still, the the South is largely a Republican sort of territory as far as the presidency is concerned. And Nixon was a president who came, Nixon was was able to take full advantage of that.
0: So are there any lessons uh, from Richard Nixon's uh, comeback as a candidate in 1968 and ultimate success for Mr. Trump here? Should he continue his candidacy into 2024?
1: Well, Nixon was able to... I I suppose one thing that uh, uh, Donald Trump could learn from Nixon is that Nixon at least was able to come back and not be tarnished by... um, as a loser, he wasn't really...
0: Uh, How did he manage that? He lost twice big time. In
1: some quarters, he was, he was thought to be that. Um, well, I, I think that there are different kinds of loss. Um, there, there's losing an election, um, and that's one kind of loser. But Nixon still had sort of street cred, so to speak, as a conservative. Um, and he had credibility as a Republican candidate. he he wasn't necessarily hated within the party. Um, He just didn't have an image as a a guy who could bring people together or as um, a a popular figure. Um, But Nixon had enough um, that got him over. Uh, This is where differences in personality and even in philosophy still matter. Um, And while Donald Trump certainly would and has and will run against the sort of the so-called liberal establishment. And, and Nixon did that. It's not entirely clear that there's a, the same kind of liberal establishment in 2022 as there was back in Lyndon Johnson's day. Joe Biden yeah. has many things, but he's not a raving liberal. Um, he, he's almost the epitome and embodiment of, of a moderate. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's worked well for Joe Biden. Um, and uh, Hu- Hubert Humphrey was a great guy, but, but it all, was a great liberal. Uh, Lyndon Johnson was a great liberal. Um, There's not, they weren't moderates. Uh, Nixon was closer to being a moderate uh, than he was probably to anything else. Um, but again, if uh, Donald Trump learns lessons, it, one thing he's going to have to do his changed his own image. And, and that means coming more toward the center. Just coming hard. Boy, that's a
0: win. lot of change, Professor Gerhardt. <laughs>
1: well, I'm not a, a political scientist. I'm obviously not a great uh, politician. But it's going to be hard to win coming hard from the right. Yeah. Um, and, um, and but there's another thing as well. Nixon lost. But Nixon wasn't as sore a loser. Um, Nixon didn't say, look, the entire system is corrupt. Let's toss the Constitution out. Nixon just said, let's vote for me this time. Nixon believed in elections. In
0: fact, Nixon gave a very gracious speech um, in 1961 when he was counting electoral votes in in the joint session of Congress in which he declared Kennedy as the winner against him. So, um, uh, Last point, you were saying that Nixon still had credibility with the Republican Party. Uh, do you think that's going to that? That that's also one difference, perhaps, between him and uh, Donald Trump. We're beginning to see more and more fractures within the Republican Party vis-a-vis him. You think that's I, a difference?
1: That is a difference. I mean, yeah. Uh, you know, Nixon was a party guy. Um, Donald Trump was an outsider. Sort of, he relished that. He wasn't. A party guy. Uh, he did become the party, um, but he wasn't um, ever really the party guy. And even now, I think he doesn't seem to be the party guy, by which I mean the Republican party guy. Yeah. Uh, and instead, he's he still, I think, uh, perhaps relishing and emanating sort of the image of being an outsider. But it's hard to be an outsider when you've been president. Um, and <laughs> yeah. at some point he was quite inside the system and, and he had a record um, perhaps Nixon had some advantage in not having a record yeah yeah yeah, yeah. as but, a president but Donald Trump now has a record both as a president and as an ex-president uh, Nixon didn't, wasn't running as an ex-president um, and uh, but he was running as somebody who wasn't challenging The system, as much as Donald Trump challenges, so I guess I'm I'm um, I'm fighting the question a little bit. No, no, I think you
0: answered it. uh, That that sort of
1: I just don't uh, think the analogy can works quite as well as perhaps Donald Trump would like.
0: Yeah, Uh, let's take a break here. Stay with me and Professor Gerhard as we get into the perspective.
2: The History Behind News podcast is available on all your favorite podcast platforms. Of course, we love your reviews and ratings of our podcast, especially on Apple and Spotify. And remember, don't keep us to yourself. Tell a friend about the History Behind News podcast.
0: Professor Gerhardt, have any presidential candidates? particularly those who managed a comeback um, either as a nominee or as a president, ever suggest a suspension of our Constitution as Mr. Trump did recently or caused or attempted to cause like major disruption to our system and democracy?
1: None, none like this. I mean, there, there, were, there were people who were president who in a sense sort of turned their backs on the system. Uh, John Tyler even left uh, the, the U.S. political system and joined the Confederacy. Um, uh, oh. Frank, Franklin Pierce um, blamed the Civil War on Abraham Lincoln, even after Lincoln died. Um, and but this
0: is after their presidencies,
1: right? This is after their presidencies. Yeah, um, and and so, uh, but but. Their their anger and their animosity didn't translate into any kind of political success for them, um, and um, and so I think in that sense, um, even when those former presidents were trying to find some way to make a comeback, they they hadn't really sort of rejected uh, anyone who had rejected this country and the Constitution was a lost cause no no pun intended there but yeah yeah they were not not uh, then we're coming back successfully in the American system um, uh, Is that what
0: you project uh, for Mr. Trump because of this I,
1: I, I don't know I mean he, I, I think the one thing that strikes me about Donald Trump is he has a very loyal base but the challenge for him always has been whether he could broaden that base. And it's just not entirely clear he has the means to do that.
0: Professor Gerhard, as a legal uh, scholar and a legal historian, uh, what do you think are the ramifications? Let's just put media and politics aside for a moment, just legally speaking, when a former president that wants to be president again um, says something like that. Is, does this go through court? Let's say he, he all of a sudden becomes a nominee. Do we? Does the Supreme Court need to get involved? Because he's going to swear to uphold the Constitution, yet he's made this statement. Well, well, it, how, it, how, how is this reconciled legally? I'm not talking about politics or you know right now, what people say on right social media.
1: Right now, it's not for the courts. It's really for the American people to decide. Um, and uh, I don't know that. I think the polling suggests um, that the American people are not turning their backs on the U.S. Constitution. The American people are not saying that Joe Biden is an illegitimate person. Uh, Yeah. uh, The American people counted the votes. In fact, the American people voted for Joe Biden. Everything we know about the last election is it it didn't have any kind of fraud in it. Um the winner was a valid winner. It was certified in all sorts of places by Republicans, I might add.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. You
1: know, Georgia's one example. Um, and while those Georgia candidates who certified the election were themselves successful later, you know, Governor Kemp, for example, um, um, that's that puts them in an entirely different place than I think someone who says, "Look, the, ent- the system is so corrupt. I think we've got to scrap the Constitution. and and make me king. Yeah. So
0: legally speaking, is there a disqualification clause to prevent someone who...
1: There is a disqualification clause, but it's not entirely clear it's going to apply here. The the disqualification arises in two ways, at least legally. Uh One is through the impeachment process. Um, One of the sanctions if you're convicted in the impeachment process is disqualification. But Donald Trump twice was not convicted, so that... Part of the impeachment process never was applicable to him and still isn't applicable to him. The other way disqualification arises um, is through the 14th Amendment. Section 3 of the 14th Amendment has a a provision which would make somebody ineligible, um, Mm -hmm. somebody who sort of um, was a traitor, somebody who um, violated their oath, Uh, and really opposed and maybe was a party to insurrection, um, that person would become ineligible under that clause of the Constitution. The critical question is how that clause operates in 2022. And we don't really have consensus on that. It's not clear whether we need a court to certify that. It's not clear whether there needs to be a trial or anything else. Um, And so it's really an open question constitutionally how Section 3 could apply to Donald Trump if and when that day might come.
0: Interesting. I I see a potential that if, should he become the nominee of the Republican Party, someone filing a suit saying he's not qualified. I mean, you could see that happening.
1: Sure. The the suit could be filed. I just don't know whether it'd be successful. Yeah, Um, interesting. Some of the scholarship on the... Section three of the Fourteenth Amendment does suggest there's got to be some kind of uh, formal decision now, whether it's made by Congress or whether it's made by a court. That's where we don't have consensus, but but it ha- likely has to be made, um, and uh, and that'll have to be a, 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 a something we need to address if uh, Donald Trump becomes successful again in, as a presidential candidate.
0: Has 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 such a suit ever? Uh, been filed again. No, you're shaking your head now. Yeah. Um, I want to switch gears here a little bit and ask about you. Uh, You've testified before Congress some 20 times or so. What is this experience like? Are there things happening, conversations, commotions that we Americans don't see on our screens? I mean, uh, in particular, I have this question for you, Professor Gerhardt. Has a member of Congress who disagreed, sort of, with the thrust of your argument testimony ever come up to you with real interest to follow up conversation? Or, or is this all sort of pro forma?
1: Well, I, I think a lot of it is probably uh, per- performance. I don't necessarily mean that critically. Yeah. Um,
0: uh, sort of formality but, of going through the process, right?
1: right? Yeah. I, I mean, people have roles. Yeah. that they're performing. Um, Democrats, Republicans, even witnesses. Um, but I have had people sort of come up to me afterwards, even people didn't agree with me, and had conversations with them since. I mean, to paraphrase one of them, I, uh, when he was in Congress in the House, I, uh, Mike, I did have a chance to testify more than once in front of Mike Pence. And he did come up to me afterwards, after one of the times and said, Look, I and I'm paraphrasing, I'd love to have you as a professor. I don't agree with what you're saying, but you know, <laughs> I, 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 I have a feeling you were you were good in the classroom. And I just took the compliment and said, you know, thank you. And he was very respectful and and so you know, that was fine. And um I that's I a great story. Had, I haven't had sharp disagreements, you know, with somebody, you know, um afterwards, uh and, and that's just partly because um the people who come up afterwards are probably more coming up to say, look, thank you for testifying. Yeah. I certainly have had Republican members of Congress do that. And I'm very grateful. I, I come before Congress as, as a citizen. I not yeah. come as anything else. I mean, maybe a citizen who's, who's um, trying to be a scholar. Um, and so I, I, I'm appreciative as a citizen that people in Congress who are, for, in fact, representatives or senators, if I have not testified from the Senate, that they're, they're appreciative that I'm just trying to um, be a part of the system that they themselves are part of.
0: Professor Gerhardt, thank you so much for educating me and our listeners. And to our listeners, if you know of any history that could provide more perspective from the past on this subject, please share it with us and tell us what's your perspective. Thank you so very much.
1: Thank you. I really appreciate it.
0: The opinions and statements of our guests are their own. We neither agree nor disagree with them. We're only interested in the perspective they provide through history. At History Behind News, we're honored that our guests share their expertise with us, most of which are based on years of scholarship and research. And we provide links to their projects and publications for your benefit, to review them if you wish. Otherwise, we're not affiliated with our guests. We just think they teach us pretty cool history, the history behind our news. Also, unless we explicitly inform you, we're not affiliated with any institutions, including Amazon, for which book links are shared here from time to time for your convenience. Finally, as a reminder, we don't do news here at History Behind News, And of course, share your thoughts with me by leaving your comments on Twitter or sending an email to adele at historybehindnews.com. I love to hear from you. I love to learn from you. Until next time, this is Adele with History Behind News, a history podcast for our news.